What famous Christmas movie was originally released in the summer? People didn't realize it had a Christmas plot until they saw it on the silver screen. Why are the traditional colors of Christmas red and green? Answers to those and other holiday questions coming up in this episode of The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. Welcome to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity with fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia. And we've got some real good holiday questions coming up today. I think this is a good one, Marsha. What famous Christmas movie was originally released in the summer? Well, that wasn't like, uh, it's not Die Hard, is it? No, no, that's not a Christmas movie. I know people call it a Christmas okay, movie Okay, well, that's today. a movie that took place at Christmas, yes. Yes, that's why. <laughs> so people bring it out at Christmas. This is a classic Christmas movie that's been around for more than a half a century. Okay, then I don't know. Okay, I'll give you choices here. Scrooged, Elf, Remember the Night, or Miracle on 34th Street? Scrooged. No, believe it or not, it was Miracle on 34th Street. What? That was released (laughs) in the summer? I know. What a weird story. Daryl F. Zanuck was the studio head. He insisted this movie be released in May. He said more people go to the movies in warmer weather. So the studio promoted it, but keeping its Christmas setting a secret. Fox's promotional trailer depicted a fictional producer roaming the studio backlot, encountering stars like Rex Harrison and Ann Baxter and Peggy Ann Garner and Dick Hames, and asking them about this movie. And they said, oh, that's a great film. It's a great film. Uh They didn't reveal what the film was Uh about. So people didn't know what it was until they went to the movies. Is that the one with uh, Natalie Wood and uh, Yes, this is Payne? the Chris Kringle story. Yeah, yeah Catherine that was O'Hara too. and yeah. John Payne. Yeah. Yeah, the movie posters featured O'Hara and John Payne, but it didn't have Edwin Gwynn's Chris Kringle in the front. No. The film opened at the Roxy Theater in New York, June 1947. I'll be darned. I think there'd be some people there like, what? This is a Christmas <laughs> film. But it turned out to be one of the best Christmas movies ever. Did it get a big following then? Did yeah. people watch it? And... Oh, yeah. It became a huge hit. Okay. And, of course, today all the video packaging is, you know, is uh, Edmund Gwynn as the uh, as Santa Claus and Natalie Wood dominating the imagery. Uh-huh. But uh, originally it was released as a summer movie Probably. because that's when people went to the theater. <laughs> okay, Bob, why are the traditional colors of Christmas red and green? Yeah, why are they red and green? That's a good question. Well, I always thought uh, green meant, uh, you know, growth and, uh, you know, life, Uh things like that. Uh Red, though, that's a good question. Uh Why was red in there? I don't know. What's the answer? Well, different people have appropriated it for different uh, reasons or religions, but Country Living Magazine did a deep dive into the original color scheme choice And it goes back to, of course, centuries to the winter solstice and the Celtic people who believed that green and red holly plants brought beauty and good fortune in the middle of winter. Okay. So come 21st of December, they'd bring in the holly plants for good luck and good fortune. And as such, they regularly decorated their homes with the red and green plants as a way to promote a prosperous new year. Okay. And over time, the habit of red and green decorations became a passed down winter tradition across the world. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the natural uh, plants too. Yeah. Just uh, brighten up anything to brighten it up. 
Well, I got some interesting things here, Marsha, about Christmas songs, okay? Okay. I'm talking pop music songs. Now, most of us know White Christmas was written by a famous Jewish composer. Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin. Irving. But how many other pop Christmas tunes were written by Jewish people? Oh, a lot of them. Okay, four more, six more, ten more? Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. So White Christmas, we know, was written by a man yeah, who was Jewish. Yeah, but... Uh, um, Four, six, or ten more. And some of the best songs like were sung by Jewish people, too, like Barbara Streisand. Right. And she sang, had Christmas albums, so many These people. These are people who wrote them, I'm saying. Yes, I know. Four, six, or ten more, please ten. answer. Ten. ten. <laughs> You're exactly right. <laughs> I will be reading you the titles of 11 songs in this podcast, and they uh-huh. were all written by Jewish people. Okay. So, Irving Berlin, of course, uh, wrote White Christmas, and his daughter said she thought it was her father's gratitude for America, the country Uh that bought his family out of poverty, that fostered his appreciation for Christmas, and it was almost a patriotic thing to write that song. Uh Okay, another tune, Chestnuts Roasting Over an Open Fire, the Christmas song. Uh Mel Torme wrote it. I didn't know he was Jewish. Yeah, he grew up on the south side of Chicago in a working-class Jewish family. Uh Uh-huh. And he collaborated with Robert Wells. They wrote the Christmas song in 1946. And, of course, it was uh, who was the big uh, person who, who had that as a hit? Nat King Cole. Nat King Cole, yeah. Okay, more Christmas songs coming up. Okay. I thought you were going to name ten of them. I will. I've oh, given just, you two of them so far. Okay. So, what big thing happened in American football in 1941? Hmm. It, it's a new rule, which is still, of course, firmly in place today. But... Everything changed about football, American football, in 1941. You know what it was? It was the forward pass. No. No? Okay, I thought that's what it was, because I thought that was prohibited at one point. Okay, what was it? Okay, this kills me. Until 1941, all 11 players had to play both offense and defense. Oh, of course. Well, that's the way things were done back in the day. Oh, my God. Imagine how it must have killed them. Imagine there was no resting. There were no substitutions allowed except in the case of... Severe injury. We had that in basketball, too. You know, Did you? you? Almost all team sports had the same people playing all the positions, both offense and defense. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Especially football. Yeah, that's where the you know specialization really took hold. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what do you got? All right. Uh, what Christmas song was erroneously attributed to such famous composers as Beethoven, Mozart, and Haydn? Because nobody for sure knew who wrote it. And it was always this rumor that, oh, one of these great composers had was written it. Was it the Hallelujah Chorus? Was it Mendelssohn? No, very no, simple no. song. Very simple song. Silent Night? That's it. Yeah, it wasn't really until the 1990s that they were able to prove that because they found an 1820 document, a manuscript of Silent Night, written in the handwriting of Joseph Moore, who was one of the writers. He was the guy who wrote it because the organ broke down and the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, And he and his friend, who was uh, also a composer, they were both uh, Austrian yeah. priests and uh, people in a very small village, Alpine Village. They sang it as a duet with a guitar one night in yeah. 18, 1816. Wasn't there something about the piano tuner came and uh, yes. sang it? What, what story was that? The piano tuner good, came, we, he liked it, and he took it with him, and then it eventually was heard by uh, one of the great uh, rulers, and it was played at the court. And, yeah. You know, though, it's interesting, the term Silent Night, it was written because they'd just gone through 12 years of the Napoleonic Wars. Oh, jeez. No, I didn't make that connection. And then the Indonesian volcano Mount Tambora erupted, and that caused the year with no summer because it was even snowing in the summer. The skies were cloudy for the whole year. 
Was snowing, you mean like flakes from the volcano or what? It actually snowed because the weather was so out of whack that year. Really? So Silent Night was all about God is there, God is taking care of us, it's quiet, at least it's quiet. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah, that was a poem to convey hope that there was still a God who cared. That's interesting. You know, when times are bad, like right now, things aren't great in the world. You think, oh, has it ever been like this? Oh, yeah, there's been a lot worse. Yeah. Back in 1919, Bob, Women were warned if they didn't use this product that you'd always be a bridesmaid, but never a bride. Oh, my goodness. Was this a deodorant product by any chance? how did you know I don't know. It just sounds like some kind of personal care. I was going to give you a clue, the name. Are you ready for the name? This is so funny. Odo Rono. Odo Rono. That was one you, every once in a while, you heard those advertised on old radio shows. You did? (laughs) It's O-D-O-R-O-N-O. No odor. Oh, the no pro- odor. That's so funny. <laughs> the product was called Odoroto, and it was the first product to coin the name B.O. for body odor. Oh, okay. <laughs> so that was in a commercial. 1919. Wow. It warned that your social success hinged on eliminating B.O. Before Odorono, deodorant makers were more delicate and said their products would foster daintiness and sweetness. I don't know how they address the guys, but women apparently had to be dainty and sweet. We guys were dainty and sweet, too. Uh, But Odorono went right for the jugular and advised women to take the armhole odor test. (laughs) Oh, dear. Almost like Molly, what was her name on Saturday Night Live? Always sniffed her, yeah. sniffed oh, her underarms. God, Remember that? That was, that was a hilarious bit. It was. So tell me again, the no odor, how does that reflect it in the name? Read it backwards. O-D-O dash R-O dash no. Odor, no, no odor. No odor. It's oh, funny. God. All but, right. So if you want to be a bride, baby, get your, <laughs> o- get your Odorono. Okay, so the holidays are the time of the big show at Radio City Music Hall with Uh Rockettes. And in the New York Times, they have a section for kids. And there was an interesting little article by Sydney Mesher. She is now a Rockette. She Uh grew up in Portland, Oregon. And she said when she was little, she used to lip sync to Britney Spears or Pink and spin and kick and shake her shoulders. (laughs) But one thing, she was born without a left hand. And at school, she was bullied. Some kids called her Sydney No Hands. So she didn't know she'd ever be able to do what she wanted to do. But Uh when she was 10, she won a scholarship to a dance convention in New York where members of the Rockettes taught a workshop. And today, she is a Rockette. I'll be darned. She says, every year, we entertain more than a million people at our Christmas Spectacular. Rehearsal starts six weeks in advance. I usually perform in two to four shows every day. In our dressing rooms, we do our own hair and makeup. Then we put on the first of nine costumes. No kid. Every show they every have nine show, costume nine costumes. Changes? Whoa! And so throughout the show, we're dressed as soldiers, reindeer, and fairies. <laughs> she says we're famous for our high kicks, where our toes nearly line up with our foreheads. Yeah. And some of us perform up to six hundred fifty kicks in a day. So that's a lot of work. And she says, when a show ends, there are people waiting at the stage door to treat us like celebrities. Oh. <laughs> Isn't that sweet? How old were you when you went to New York to see that? Uh, first time I saw them, it was my high school senior trip and oh, when really? I was 18. They took you, huh? 17 or 18. And then you and I saw the Rockettes when they came to Milwaukee and did a show. Uh-huh. Just thought that was kind of interesting. And One-handed Rocket? Yeah. And despite that disability, she made it as a dancer in a major stage show. Fantastic. I just thought that was That's endearing. interesting, yeah. For the holidays. Uh-huh. Okay, more songs written by Jews that we use at Christmas time. Uh-huh. What Christmas song was written by a man who won four Oscars and wrote 89 songs for Frank Sinatra? 
89? 89 of his songs were sung by Frank Sinatra. I should know this if he was that prolific. Um, his first name was Sammy. Sammy Kahn. That's right. And what Christmas song did he and Julie Stein write? I don't know. Let It Snow. Let It Snow. It's not like a big religious song. I Let didn't it say snow. religious song. I Just said they're Christmas time song. songs. Yeah. Uh, here's another one. Santa Baby. That was also written by two Jewish people, Joan Javits and Phil Springer. And Eartha Kitt recorded that in 1953. I, boy, I remember that being played in the 60s a lot. Yeah. It was very sexy. Yeah. Okay, Bob, I'm going to actually give you a multiple choice. Okay. This is the thing I always have to give to you, but you rarely give to me. I do rarely. Multiple choice. Did the first digital computer in 1945 weigh five tons? 20 tons, 30 tons. Oh, I bet it's 25 or 30 tons because it filled a whole room. So your answer is? 30 tons. That's correct. <laughs> the first ENIAC computer, is that how you say it? Yeah, E-N-I-A-C. And it weighed 30 tons and stood two stories tall. Jeez. Programming it required 3,000 switches and wiring cable connections, all by hand. The computer used 19,000 vacuum tubes, which rapidly burned out. Tried carrying that around on your pocket phone. <laughs> wow, 19,000 vacuum tubes. Yeah, that little nugget comes from good old days, my ass. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's, uh, I think, wasn't that in Pittsburgh or Philadelphia? Well, somewhere in Pennsylvania. And what does that stand for? It, electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. So they even called it computer bank then. Yeah, that, that was funded by the federal government in the waning years of the war, and the first uses of it were to determine the trajectory of artillery shells. For World War II? Yes, for okay. World War II. That, and then these, those two guys that started that, Mouchley and I forget the other fellow, I think they eventually formed the company that was known as Univec. Yeah, I hate asking you questions and you know more about the answer than I do. <laughs> and then in 1960, no, okay, that's enough of that. That was good. Okay, Marcia, back to Christmas songs. Okay. Uh, speaking of war, what Christmas song played a role in a famous Christmas Eve celebration in World War One? A Christmas song we know. Uh-huh. We've already spoken of it. Uh-huh. What's the question? Played? What Christmas song played a role in a famous Christmas Eve celebration in World War One? I'll be home for Christmas. No, it was uh, it was uh, something we just spoke about. You know that one. Yeah, it was that one, Marsh. Which one? Uh, okay, I'll give no, it to you. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Silent night. Silent night. It was silent night. Yes, during the Christmas truce of 1914, at the height oh. of World War One, German and British soldiers on the front lines in Flanders laid down their weapons on Christmas Eve and sang Silent Night together. Isn't it just kill you that day? <laughs> Sweet, isn't it? Both sides, right? Right. It's just for a moment in time, and then they go back to killing each other. <laughs> All right. I think it's time for a break. Okay. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob and Marcia Smith. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, Boomer. I'm Robert Rickman, host of OK Boomer with Robert. Yes, we like to enlighten you with colorful features, Boomer news, Boomer history, but we will also mystify you. And this one coming up in 24, that's going to be really creepy. That's an astronomer standing at ground zero where the 2017 and 2024 eclipse paths will cross over Carbondale, Illinois, the home of OK Boomer with Robert. And you can find OK Boomer with Robert wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. We're doing some holiday questions here today on the off-ramp. We do this every week for the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin. And then after that, we put it on the podcast platforms, and it goes... 
all over the world. There we go. <laughs> I almost missed my cue there. Sorry. <laughs> I have another Christmas song question, okay? Okay. What Christmas song, a popular Christmas song, was co-written, again, by a Jew, uh-huh. a co-writer of the Gilligan's Island theme? Well, I have no idea. <laughs> oh, yes, you do. Okay. It's about being a certain time of the year. The most wonderful time That's right. of the year. George Wiley and Eddie Pola. Now, George Wiley went on to eventually co-write the theme to Gilligan's Island. In 1963, George Wiley and Eddie Pola collaborated on this song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, which was a hit for Andy Williams. Okay, Bob. According to Statista.com, sounds like a, a Cuban military group, what is the most desired Christmas gifts? What are currently the most? What are the current most desired Christmas gifts? So now you're asking me for more than one answer. Yeah, well. To your question. I'm letting you, if you're wrong, it might be second or third. Take a guess. What do you think most people want for Christmas this year? Is this for male and females? Well, yes. Okay, and is there any other hint I can have? No, we're giving uh, two of these things this year. We are. Is it money? Yes, that's number one. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Uh, 50% of women... And 36% of men say their preferred gift is money. Cash, cold cash. Hmm. Gift cards come in second, and it's followed by clothing, textiles, and shoes. Kind of sad that money and gift cards are the number one and two things for most yeah, people. I know. I never wanted either for Christmas. No. But uh, I guess it's better than getting something, you know, your third pot and pan set or something. Well, it's better than getting nothing, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And gift cards, uh, and you know what happens? People lose them. Yeah. And then then it just goes money right down the toilet. Oh, well, speaking of that, Marsh, what Christmas song almost had a bathroom connotation? This, again, is another Christmas song written by Jews. I don't know, Bob. Bathroom connotation, kind of flush you right down the toilet for Christmas? No, the song was called... Yeah. Originally called Tinkle Bells. Tinkle? (laughs) (laughs) Silver Bells, written by Ray Evans and Jay Livingston. That was almost called Tinkle Bells, but Jay Livingston's Jewish wife, Lynn Gordon, was aware of the double entendre of Tinkle. Uh, So she persuaded her husband, don't call it Tinkle Bells, call it Silver Bells or something else. And and that is a lovely song. It was my brother's favorite Christmas song. Who was the only president, Bob, to serve in the Senate after presidency? That was, let me see here. That was a 20th century president, and it was after Roosevelt, or right before Roosevelt. What was his name? Is it William Howard Taft? No. Is it, um, I'm thinking of the guy, I think he was a Supreme Court justice after he was president. I don't know. What's the answer? Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson served in the Senate? Yeah. He was president from 1865 to 1869. Right. He followed Lincoln. He was his vice president. He was the only former president to be elected to the U.S. Senate, the very body that almost kicked him out of office. No kidding. His triumph return was short, however. In less than four months, he died of stroke. And then replacing him was? Ulysses S. Grant replaced him. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So Andrew Johnson, the only former president who was elected to the Senate after his term as president. I did not know that, I have to admit. Okay, Bob, it's okay not to know something. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but you're always calling me Mr. History, so I want to admit... Your presidential history in particular. I want to admit the ignorance here. All right. Accepted. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) I feel so much better. (laughs) I love coming to confession, Father. (laughs) All right. Moving on. What Christmas song finally hit number one 25 years after it was issued? 
We don't realize this, but a lot of these pop songs weren't that big when they were first released. Uh-huh. Brenda Lee's song, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, was not that popular when she recorded it at the age of 13 yeah. in 1958 or something. Uh-huh. But in the early 60s, she became very popular, and they decided, let's release it again. And that's when oh, it became yeah. a hit. Okay. So this is like that, too. This is a more recent artist. Her song became number one on Billboard's Hot 100 chart for the first time in 2019, 25 years after it was first released. Oh, really? And she is? She is. No idea. Mariah. Carey. Mariah but Wait, Carey. she recorded All, All I, I want, want for Christmas is You? Yes. What year did she do she that? She recorded that 25 years before 2019, so that was recorded in the 1990s. Well, how old was she? She was young. Yeah. She's in her 50s now, but yeah, that was a big hit, but it wasn't a big hit for a long time. It plays in a big loop on all the Christmas channels. It's a huge hit now. That's from Britannica.com. Okay. We have another president question. Okay. I'll try (laughs) this time. That's my Christmas present for you. Thank you. Okay. What famous person warned about the danger of political parties leading to temporary or permanent despotism? Okay, now that word takes it back to earlier times. So I think that was George Washington. Very good. Yeah. And why do you think? Because those parties began during his administration. Yeah, and he was elected... Without a party. Without a party. Yeah, there was was no party. He was the only one that didn't belong to a political party. It was Alexander Hamilton who organized the first political party. That's the Federalists. Right, in 1790. And then Thomas Jefferson opposed him with the so-called what, you know? They were called Democrats, but Democratic Republicans, is That's that what it, it was? Yeah. Very good, very yeah, good. Yeah, they were moral enemies, Thomas Jefferson and uh, and Alexander Hamilton. Yeah. They couldn't stand one another because they had totally different concepts of what the government should be. Uh-huh. Washington had these two juniors in his administration fighting and yelling at each yeah. other all the time. Yeah. And he's going, this is not good. And yeah. he could see what was coming. And despots, of course, they execute absolute power. And he was worried that one party would become too strong and rule yes. unequitably. Uh, Very wise. He was long before his time. Marsha, what Christmas song, again, another Christmas song written by Jews, was written as a poem by a patient in a tuberculosis sanitarium. This is a person who couldn't do what the song was about. Oh, uh, he was a young man, too. He was Riding in a his... one-horse open sleigh? No. No. What? Something more basic than that. Uh, but build a snowman? When you get up every day, what do you do? Uh, build a snowman? No, no. You walk somewhere. Walk out to walking, the bathroom? Walking in a winter wonderland. Oh, yes. By Felix Bernard and Richard B. Smith. Now, the Jewish composer was Felix Bernard. The non-Jewish composer was Richard B. Smith. And... He was being treated in the West Mountain Sanatorium for tuberculosis in 1934. His sister said he was inspired by the freshly fallen snow yeah. in the park. He'd love to walk uh, through that winter yeah. wonderland. But he died the following year at age 34. Jeez. Oh, gosh. All right. Thank you for this incredible musical history you uh, presented got, to us today. I've got more. <laughs> Where did the phrase, keep it under your hat, meaning to keep something secret, come from? Sounds like a World War II thing. Keep it under your hat. Keep it under your hat. Why would it be keeping it under your hat, though? Because these always relate to something specific. Mm -hmm. It does. Somebody had to put something under their hat so it would be, I don't know, what's the answer? Well, you'll like this, and you probably knew this. According to many historians, it comes from a habit of President Abraham Lincoln. Oh, yeah. The stovepipe hat was one of Lincoln's signature accessories, And the final hat he ever wore is now at the Smithsonian 
uh, National Museum of American History. Yeah. The top hat helped the six foot four president tower over crowds even more than he usually did. But the adornment wasn't just for looks. He actually kept documents in there and speeches and other things. <laughs> Do that, yeah. Uh, he would often remove papers, letters from friends, as well as speeches from his hat while addressing constituents. And he was also known to take documents from atop his hat and throw them down in front of generals in anger. Oh, that's funny, isn't it? <laughs> so, yeah, keep it under your hat. The generals would probably think, don't have anything come out there, and he'd yell at them and bring oh, that's out funny. from under his hat. Well, it's probably, you know, keep it under your hat was a nice, quiet place to put things he was going to use later. Okay, Marcia, in a recent interview, singer Brenda Lee pointed out that four, four of the most famous Christmas songs were written by a Jew, in this case, Johnny Marks. These are famous songs all written in the 40s. Okay. What do you think they are? Oh, I have no idea. Okay, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. <laughs> okay. Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. Really? Yep. Okay. Holly Jolly Christmas. Uh-huh. And Silver and Gold. They were all written by Johnny Marks or co-written by Johnny Marks. Now, what one of those songs was inspired by the ostracism one of Johnny Marks' co-writers felt as a Jew? And it had to do with a physical feature of his. That inspired it. Oh, really? Uh I don't know. Think of the Jewish cliche. What do you have as a... Uh, as, uh, was it something with his nose? Yes, it was. So what song would that be? The Frosty the Snowman? No, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Oh, had a very shiny nose. Co-written with Robert Louis May, who was another affluent New York Jew. The lyrics represent the ostracism he felt growing up as a Jewish boy with a oh. large nose. Oh, he had a prominent nose, and, he, and Rudolph was the was the guiding light for Santa. That's right. Yeah. That's and now uh, one more question. Which of Johnny Mark's Christmas songs was inspired by swaying palm trees? <sighs> swaying palm trees. Of those four songs, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh -huh. Holly Jolly Christmas, Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, and Silver and Gold. I don't know. It was rocking around the Christmas tree. <laughs> How so? Well, in a New York Times interview, 65 years after she recorded that song as a 13-year-old, Brenda Lee revealed that secret. She asked Johnny Marks, Johnny, you don't even believe in Christmas. How did you write this song? Uh-huh. He said he'd been on a recent vacation lying on a beach, and he was mesmerized by the distant trees swaying in the ocean okay. breeze. They seemed to be rocking, he said. <laughs> and so, rocking around the Christmas tree was born. Have a happy holiday. So here are the names of the 11 songs we just reviewed, written all by Jews that are Christmas songs. White Christmas, Chestnuts Roasting in an Open Fire, Let It Snow, Santa Baby, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, Silver Bells, or Tinkle Bells, <laughs> Walking in a Winter Wonderland, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Rocking Around a Christmas Tree, A Holly Jolly Christmas, and Silver and Gold, all written by Jewish people. Christmas songs. All right, you got some quotes to wrap this holiday show up? Okay. First one, Mahatma Gandhi. He said, the day the power of love overrules the love of power, the world will know peace. That was Gandhi. Mm, good one. And then good old Mother T. You can't go wrong with Mother Teresa. Okay. Mother <laughs> T. <at> <laughs> I didn't know That's who Mother a, T was. That, that was what I have in my notes here. I didn't think it through. Okay. She says, it's not how much we give, but how much love we put into giving. All right. Well, those are both very great quotes and a great way to wrap up this holiday-themed show. Next week, we'll have an encore performance of a former holiday show, and then we'll move into the new year. I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. Join us again next week for more fascinating facts and tantalizing trivia here on The, the Off-Ramp.
The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.